Let's ask for God's help on our time. Father, in the name of Jesus, we surrender our time over to you. Um, we thank you and we praise you that you are the God who chose to speak into the lives of your people. You did not leave us in the dark. You did not leave us guessing. You have given us a word. You have spoken, Lord God, first and foremost through your canon, which you caused to be collected and preserved, uh, Lord God. And in the inspiration of the canon, O oh God, you also said that these words are spirit and they are life. Therefore, it's more than mere literature. But as we read it and believe it, it does something powerful in our life. And one of the things that it does, according to its own testimony that you've crafted, Lord God, is that it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that we would be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Help us, Jesus. Help us, Lord to experience the full menu of what you've intended today. If your emphasis is more on service, if it's more doctrine, if it's more reproof, Lord God, whatever you want to do, we yield the time over to you and say, let the life of your word be manifest in this gathering. Lord God, we also believe what your word says and that you gave gifts to men, Lord God, and with the specific intent in this gathering, oh God, for preaching so that your people would be perfected, edified, and made ready for the work of the ministry. Lord God, we pray, Lord God, for evidences of that to be clear in our gathering. Lord God, you also said, Lord God, through the mouths and lives of others, that uh, when they came in to preach and teach your word, that they claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, so that the faith of the listeners would not rest in the oratory ability of the speaker, but actually in a demonstration of the spirit. Lord God, would you let there be a demonstration of the spirit? Cause something to happen in this gathering where each one of us, Lord God, we are found, we are located in our particular situation where seeds are planted, seeds are watered, seeds are grown, weeds are cut back, issues in, in our lives that are choking out the growth, the fruitful growth of your word in our life, Lord God, that, 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 that the, the terrain of our heart would be cleared so that your word could burst through with new fruit in us. Lord God, equip us more dutifully for service, but above all things, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I told the saints at the first service that when I was uh, getting ready for this message, I felt like a kid in a candy store, so forgive me if I seem like I am just all over the place pointing at everything. Uh, because there were so many delicious things that I saw uh, in the text and I had to limit myself. We started a brand new series entitled Courageous Faith that'll be built on the book of Joshua. And if you're a guest and you want to go back to find out where we've come from, we kicked off the year with actually a walk through uh, uh, several passages in the book of Acts. And so after I got done with my reading in the book of Acts and then I pivoted to get ready for this message and I'm reading the book of Joshua, Man, some lights started to go off. I, I saw some things that I just, I just want to share with you that I found to be so intriguing. Now, some people in the first service were really excited about it, and others were bored to death. So I just want to prepare the room accordingly. So welcome to NerdFest, such is the brain of Rod. So, so I'm reading the book of Acts, and then I'm reading the book of Joshua. And certain things start to leap out at me thematically. I think about, follow me very carefully here, 
I think about how in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see the disciples getting this intensive orientation through the ministry of Jesus Christ of what it's like to be his people and to follow him for three years. And then, of course, all of that ministry momentum seems to come to a screeching halt as Jesus then goes to the cross. There was this season in the disciples' lives where they were deeply dismayed because their Savior, their Lord, this person that was going to be the captain that helped correct all that had been wrong and bring them from underneath the, 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 the dominating culture and make all things right and restore the throne to Israel. Like, like he dies. Jesus dies. Now, we all know the end of the story, but from their perspective, the person who they've been following and whom they place their hope is gone. The Bible even describes this kind of deflated faith that they, that they experienced in that moment by saying they even went back fishing. They just went back to the life that they were living three years ago before Christ called them as if none of that ministry mattered. Even Thomas was so doubtful that Jesus had to make a personal appearance with wounds intact and say, put your hand in my side and see the holes in my hand in order to reinvigorate his faith. These young gentlemen were dying on the vine in terms of their faith. But what happens? They discover that Jesus really is raised from the dead. Not only do they discover it as a factual reality, but their hearts start to grapple with it. And all of a sudden, these young men whose faith was defeated and deflated is reinvigorated as we open the pages of the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, you see uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit come down as the Savior is ascended and goes up. And one of the principal promises of Jesus is that when the Holy Spirit comes, you will now receive this boldness and empowerment to witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria into the uttermost parts of the world. You will go on this new conquest that is both missional, geographic, and territorial in its nature. So I'm holding all of that in my theological backpack, right? And then I start reading the book of Joshua. And I'm going, huh. This is so interesting. God says, at the death of my servant Moses, my servant, now Joshua, I want you, who was his assistant, to arise and take my people into the land that I have promised them. And I'm like, oh my goodness. The book of Joshua is an Old Testament theological archetype of the book of Acts. It's like the older brother or the thematic cousin. Follow me carefully, right? This is the nerve fest, right? After, obviously, the birth of all things in the book of Genesis, you get Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You get these four consecutive books describing this people getting this intensive orientation of what it means to follow God in faith. And they have some ups and downs, and then it seems as if all those promises are about to die. Why? Because Moses is gone, but God's not finished. He sends someone else. He raises up Joshua. I, I, I clearly believe that in as much as we know that Moses is an Old Testament type of Christ, that Joshua is an Old Testament type of the Holy Spirit because it is in him that we see all this new language that he is going to lead God's people both missionally and geographically to advance monotheism in the ancient world beyond its original borders. That's all. I'm sorry. I don't be <laughs> Did you guys see that? Do you see that now? That's crazy, isn't it? Huh. So, anyway, um, 
But, but here's why it's germane to today's message. Follow me carefully. In much the same way that we as New Testament believers have been called to walk out all the things that God has already worked out, this is exactly the agenda that God has for the children of Israel under the new leadership of Joshua. Listen to these words in Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, who was Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. In other words, God speaks with a certitude that says, I am already giving this land. It's locked in. This has already been worked out. This is the same theological signature that we, the believers of the New Testament, have because what we're doing according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 is this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, this conversation between God and Joshua concerning uh, a courageous faith is not a pep talk, but it is a preparatory talk for them to walk out what God has already worked out. Follow me carefully. It's not a pep talk. This is not your favorite coach in the locker room at halftime berating his team and trying to stoke new emotion and courage and ability because they've been underperforming. This isn't a pep talk. This isn't about intellectual and emotional stimulation. This is a preparatory engagement to walk out what God has already worked out on their behalf. He says, I am giving the land to them. Follow me carefully because I believe that these nuggets that we're going to cover today are not just for Israel, but they are very much also for you. Courageous faith has a particular foundation. And we're going to explore some of those foundations, and there are at least three legs on this stool or this foundation that I want to cover with you today. First of all, let's look more intently at verses 1 and 2. I've already read them like two times, but let's go one more time with some particular inflection. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead, period, end of sentence. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to the people. I am giving it. Courageous faith is built first and foremost on the following foundation. Courageous faith is convinced that God is true. Courageous faith must be built first and foremost on a foundation that God is true. But not just generically true, not just factually true, but that God is true and that everything else that's contrary to that would be a lie. As is said in the book of Romans chapter 3 verses 2 through 4, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail, uh, and you will be judged, or that you are judged. Courageous faith begins by being convinced that God is actually true. 
When you read through chapter 1, there is this language like, I have given the land to him. I promised it to Moses. He doubles down when he tells him to be courageous by saying later on, I will be with you. Now, this kind of courage, you and I have already experienced it in certain little windows of life. Let me give you some. How many of you have ever been shopping over at um, Kohl's or Foot Locker or wherever you do your thing? Ann Taylor, Bloomingdale's, I'm trying to hit your spot. The Gucci Boutique, right? How many of you have been shopping at one of your favorite venues and you leave the cash register and you head for the door and when you walk through, the alarm goes off? Beep, 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 beep. Indicating that someone is what? Shoplifting. But guess what? Everybody in the mall and in the store lock eyes on you, but they are liars because you know what's in your bag has been paid for already. I don't think you heard me. I'm not talking about shopping. I'm talking about what God has done in the lives of his people that what he's called us to do has already been financed. It's already been paid for. We've got receipts. And therefore, you and I are able to walk in a counterintuitive, countercultural kind of courage because what we've been called to do has already been financed and already been completed in Christ. Now, not to be confused with just a basic boldness of brash character, not to be confused. I think we all know that there are people out there who are bold in personality but not necessarily bold in Christ. They're not bold for good reasons. It's just how they're built. Not to be confused, there are actual shoplifters who boldly go into stores and fill up their bags in their pockets, and when they hear the alarm, they just keep on moving as if nothing happened. Yeah, that's courageous too, but it's courage that's trying to escape consequences and that is built on cowardice. It's not the kind of courage that emanates from the kind of character that God's trying to build in his people. Listen to me. Our faith can only be as courageous as our belief that God is indeed righteous. I don't care how much you click your heels and ball up your fists. You can only be as courageous in your faith as much as you believe that God is righteous. That is, if he is the foundation of your faith. Otherwise, you're conjuring this courage from another source other than God. And that can't be trusted fully because it will eventually fail. So again, this is not a prep talk. This is not a pep talk. I'm not trying to get you all jacked up so you go running in this park a lot, going to seize and claim and manifest. Get in your car and, and the Lord will, and, and, and both the, the Satan will whip you. If you're out here trying to manifest for yourself, you're trying to declare and claim for yourself and be courageous in your own strength. This is, this is a courage that comes from the fact that God is righteous. The words that he has said are true. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at the home with the Lord. Courage or courageous faith is built on a foundation that is convinced that God is true. Even if I'm having difficulty reconciling how to apply the truth. I want to go back to our shoplifting analogy. When that alarm goes off and you know for a fact that what's in your bag is paid for, it doesn't, you, you don't care how they exegete what's in the bag. 
You don't care how they describe how the alarm is going up, whether it's a low battery, somebody forgot to pluck the tab off, whether the machine is acting up, everything other than you stealing is going to be the truth. Like, you're not stealing. You understand what I'm saying? And that's the kind of, you, you don't understand how the machine works that goes beep, beep, beep. You don't understand the electronic relationship between the little tab and the neck of that sweater. You don't know any of that, but you do know you didn't steal. You understand what I'm talking about? So there's stuff in your bag. Theologically, yeah, you don't know all the nuances. Yes, you fell asleep when I talk about the, the thematic archetype uh, uh, between Joshua and Acts. You dozed off. Somebody had to nudge you, said it's too early to sleep. You neither know nor care about any of that stuff, but you know that this book's true. That's the kind of being convinced that God is righteous that we're being called to. And that is a fundamental to the foundation of courageous faith. But there's more. Look at verses 7 and 8. So as you read through Joshua's chapter 1 and 2, over and over again, the Lord presses the same button. Be courageous. And look at how it sounds in verses 7 and 8. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you, not to turn from it to the right hand or to the left, and you will have good success in whatever you do. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, and you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then you shall make your way prosperous, and then you shall have good success. God is not like a forgetful father who just repeats himself because he can't remember what he said last. Whenever God repeats himself in the scripture, it's because that particular principle demands double emphasis. It's like us bolding, underlining, highlighting, circling. You understand what I'm saying? And so he says, be only strong and very courageous. Why does this matter to the foundation of our faith? Well, first of all, courageous faith is convinced that God is true, but also courageous faith is convicted that character matters. Character matters because the kind of courageous faith that Joshua is called to have is directly tethered to his commitment to obey the word of God. So we know that this courage is not just coming from a, a, a rough character. He's not just some kind of tough customer with broad shoulders who's, who knows how to handle the nitty-gritty of life. That's not where this courage is coming from. And I want to make sure that we bifurcate, if I can mess with you for just a moment, we separate, that we really do dissect what happens in the character when we are a brazen and a bold person and what kind of impulses can drive us to that. Follow me carefully because there are different kinds of qualities that drive real courage of faith, and it has nothing to do with personality. But let me just pull some off the shelf real quick. We automatically know that there's just certain people who are just bold, who are born with a bold disposition. That ain't the kind of courageous faith that we're talking about. We also know that there's liquid courage. Anybody ever felt that, seen that, or know what I'm talking about? Just in case you don't, that's when a person has drank enough alcohol that all their inhibitions fall, and they're willing to do things that they otherwise would not do. That's what we call liquid courage. There's learned courage. There's a person who feels like they're the smartest person in the room, therefore they feel like they can intellectually dominate the circumstances or the situation, and therefore they are courageous to enter into situations because they feel like they have the competence to, to back it up. That's not the kind of courage we're talking about. There's courage that comes from statistical advantage, kind of like what Goliath had. He was bigger than everybody else in the room. 
There's a kind of courage that people who have just had a great record, he had never been defeated, talking about Goliath. Some of you, some of you have got a great winning record and you feel like you're winning in life and you may indeed be winning, but I want to make sure that the courage that you're coming to the game with is courage that comes from authentic faith and belief in God and not just because you have a personally uh, a winning record. To put it very succinctly, there is a difference between calluses and character. You see, calluses is the person who is well-weathered, really experienced, and been through a lot. But calluses don't always equal character. Because when you've been through and have done and have gone through a lot, that what, what, what you've been through must somehow build you up. It must build you up to look more like the Christ. When you've got character from your calluses, your calluses drive you back to the Word of God because they say, Lord, I will not deviate. I will not deviate. I'm not taking this into my own hands. I will not lean to the left or to the right. 1 John chapter 3 speaks like this. It says, behold, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Courageous faith is indubitably connected to a consistent character. Character matters in real biblical courageous faith. Has anybody in here ever ridden a motorcycle? Been the passenger on the back? One of the fundamental gestures, or maybe a tandem bike if you're not that dangerous, right? But when you're the person on the back, it is paramount that you lean with the person who's on the front or else you create a collision. You create a disruption. And what I'm telling you is that when we are trying to follow God, we're not in separate cars trying to keep up. It, it is as if we are tracking in his word and as the Lord leans, we lean. Our movements and our focus, as the, as the passenger on the back of the motorcycle, wherever the driver is looking, that's where, that's where the passenger needs to be looking so that we don't create collisions. And so we, it, it's not just God is taking you to where you want to go. Y'all are going somewhere together, and it's, it, it's paramount that we lean with him. So if he's looking straight ahead, we look straight ahead. If he's going left, we go left. If he's going right, we go right. We are putting our weight where he puts his weight. And that's not in our own understanding. When you're on the back of a motorcycle, you're not tapping the driver on the shoulder talking about why you do that. Did you forget we said we was going by family dollar? Why are we taking this highway? You also don't hold the driver of the motorcycle on their shoulders, trying to quasi-drive from the back seat. I see some husbands looking at wives. Y'all got a motorcycle? Somebody been holding your shoulder? <laughs> I didn't mean to unearth him. <laughs> but let me simply say it this way. Courageous faith apart from consistent character is really just willpower wearing a religious mask. Man, social media is littered with people making bold and courageous affirmations of a preferred reality that is totally unhinged from a consistent character that loves the words of the Lord. Don't be that person. Calluses don't equal character. Bold and brass personality don't equal character. Having a whole bunch of tough experiences that you've resiliently made it through doesn't equal character. Unless those tough and resilient and hardcore experiences have driven you back to God's word so that those calluses get put within the context of how he is trying to make you more like Christ. Not just a tougher version of your old self. 
So, uh, this is a three-pointer today. It's not a four, so don't worry about it. Um, courageous faith has a foundation, right? First foundation is what? Courageous faith is convinced that God is true. Courageous faith is convicted that character actually matters, not just temperament, knowledge, and personality. Remember, Goliath had all of those, and where is he at in the story of redemption? But there's another thing that is also part of courageous faith, and I believe that it's found here in Joshua chapter 2, well, actually Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, as well as 2, 8. It is that courageous faith has a confession that is consistent with God's will. Look back at the verse we already covered, but with narrow focus now on verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do all that is written in it. So in other words, the initial appeal or the initial promise is to, or the imperative is that you would be courageous and be strong. And then the Lord adds another layer, and he says, all right, and I want you to consistently to, to, to never veer from my word, to keep this word. And then he goes a layer deeper and says, and here's how you're going to keep the word, to never let it depart from your mouth. But what does the Bible say about words that do not depart from my mouth? It's not just fancy sayings and slogans. According to Luke chapter 6, verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of their heart produces good, and the evil person from the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So this idea that the word of God will not leave his mouth presupposes that it is abundantly built up in his heart, or as the psalmist in 119 verse 11 would say, I have stored up your word in your heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the righteous rules of your mouth, and your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. And so the word of God needs to be so densely and copiously working in my heart that it is like my burp. It comes out of me involuntarily. Forgive the crudeness. But I think you've all been there. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to meet you where you're at. What does it mean to be that full? It is your reflex. It's not some statement you're trying to say on your situation to make your situation line up. No, it's some, it needs to come from you because you've loaded up the Word of God in your life and you actually believe it. But there's more to this. You see, true confessions start with the heart. The Bible says this even about the nature of our own salvation in Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of God we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is an undeniable connection between what is in my heart and what is coming out of my mouth. I'm not just going to confess my way into God's favor. That confession is an overflow of what is already in possession in my heart. Follow me carefully, though. There's more. Oh, there's so much more. This is more of the nerd fest, but I think you'll be able to tolerate it. When we turn the corner into Joshua chapter 2, Joshua then tells the spies to go over and to look in the land of Jericho. When they arrive in Jericho, they discover the home of a harlot, a prostitute. The Bible asked me to tell you that. 
It did not say she was a, uh, um, um, you know, uh, working, you know, uh, 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 you know, a 1099 contractor in Vegas. The Bible didn't say she was doing seamstry. It didn't say she was a call girl. The Bible says she was a prostitute. The Bible wants me to know that in all of this faith talk that I'm talking about a prostitute. The Bible also says that when they met Rahab, her house was built into the wall. Now, if you know anything about ancient Near Eastern cities and you know the story of Jericho, when God's people come to sack the city, they're going to go around the wall and it is the wall that's going to fall. What does that mean for, for, for Rahab? Rahab receives the spies, according to the scripture, if you read all of Joshua chapter 2, she hides them from those that are pursuing. She hides them, puts them up in the roof. While they are up in the roof, listen to her words. Listen to this, JT. Listen to this. Behold, when we came into the land, you shall tie this, when we come into the land, you shall tie this cord around the window through which you have let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. As soon as we heard it, now, this is, this is Rahab talking. Listen, Rahab says, as soon as we heard it, that is that the children of Israel were coming, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. So Rahab had access to the same information that everybody else in Jericho did. Their hearts melted in defeat and hers stirred up in courageous faith. What makes Rahab's faith so courageous? Number one, she knows she is not a part of the commonwealth of Israel. She knows that she does not stand a chance statistically, covenantally, or theoretically. She knows she is not invited to the table. But she asked the spies to come, that when you come, will you remember my household? Will you, will you not run over us? And then and the guys say, all right, we want you to drop a rope out the window, and we want you to tie a little scarlet cloth on there. Oh, somebody ought to see that. This sounds just like in the, the book of Exodus when they had to put the, the blood on the doorposts. You're looking forward to the cross. You got a town that's getting ready to be in the, 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 the eye of the holy hurricane of God. He is going to take the city. Rahab is in the wrong situation. She's up front. Her house is built in the wall. She is in the wrong occupation. She is doing, I mean, if you want to call it the most unholy of holies, is part of her job. She is in the wrong nation. She is not a, 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 a welcome participant in what God is doing in terms of salvation. But out of everything that is wrong, the wrong situation, the wrong occupation, and the wrong nation, she's got the right confession. The Lord, your God, he is the God of heaven and earth. Can I get some? Whatever y'all about to do, can I get some? Can I be on board? You understand that Rahab doesn't have the theological background. She doesn't know anything about the Torah, but she do know that the God of the Torah, the God of the Old Testament, brought those people through the Red Sea, and she sees that God now coming toward her, and she says, I'm afraid, but I also have some faith. I want to get in on what God is doing in my land. Do you have room in the redemptive roster for a, 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 a prostitute of the wrong nation in the wrong space living on the wall? Do you have room for me? And the answer is yes. 
And so now I'm turning towards you. I don't know your current situation. I don't know how wrong it is. I don't know what you did before you got here. I don't know what nation you're from. I don't know your situation. I don't know any of your demographics. But I don't care how much of it is jacked up or wrong or screwed up. You can get one thing right. Rahab had the right confession. Her confession was that the God of the Bible, I'm convinced that he is true and he is Lord of heaven and earth. And I would like to be a part and under his lordship. And it resulted in her salvation. Read more about her in Hebrews chapter 11, where everybody else just saw the basic facts. Everybody in Jericho had the same facts. The God of the Israels don't play. But only some had faith with those facts. You see, it's not enough just to know the Bible, right? It's filled with facts about the nature and character of God. But do those facts mix with faith to translate to transformation of me first and then, yes, my situation. So, courageous faith first is convinced that God is true. Courageous faith is convinced or convicted that character matters. Courageous faith makes a confession that is consistent with God's will, not my will. When you talk about having courageous faith, the, you know, prayer does change things, but the first thing you need to change is me and you. And if you're only interested in God changing things but not changing you, you must ask yourself the question, whose name and authority are you praying in? You're praying in your own name. That's an unanswerable prayer. One of the first things I ought to offer up, Lord, change me, regardless of how bold and courageous I am. I'll leave you with this. Remember, calluses from past experiences don't equal character. Only in the sense that those rough past experiences are translating to a deeper trust in God and a, and a, more, uh, uh, a, a more robust ownership for obedience, tethering oneself to what God is teaching regardless of how it might look through the rest of the world. Courageous faith must be built on the correct foundation. It isn't just intellectually mustering up gusto it must be tethered to the truth and the character and the nature of God. And we must regularly revisit that nature of God through meditation on the Word of God day and night. I can assure you, I don't care how bold and how big your personality, your faith is no more courageous than is your reading of the Word of God consistent. You can t-shirt me on that. Well, I want to kind of turn now because we're going to celebrate communion together and just simply put it this way. I don't know your situation. I don't know what's going on, but I don't care how wrong it is. You can have the right confession. God, you're true in everything else and everybody else, including me, is a liar. I don't care what's going wrong in your life. You could, you could, again, be in some of the worst seasons ever, but do you have the right confession? Jesus, you are Lord. Not just over my situation, I want you to be Lord over me. You may not know all of the theological fine-tuning. I don't think Rahab had that. But would you be so bold and courageous like Rahab 
when all the odds are against her in every way and shape and form. Would you be so bold as to say, God, would you save me? I know I don't deserve it. Would you save me? I know I deserve the impending wrath that's coming. Would you save me? If you could just simply pray that, I believe God would hear you. Now, if you've prayed, if you're, you're going to pray with me, because I'm going to pray, if you're going to pray that kind of prayer, man, I'd love for you to just kind of connect with me or some members of the prayer team. I also want to, to, to put this out there. As we get ready to take communion, communion is a declaration of our confession. Communion says that if you didn't get a cup, I want you to put your hand up now so that someone can serve you. Carrie doesn't have one. I see a few other hands out there. Keep your hand high if you didn't get a cup. These cups are our confession. These cups, th this cup and this bread says, Lord, we believe what you did in your son on the cross. We believe that you've already worked it out. Therefore, we're prepared to walk it out. We believe in the completed work of Christ. If you are a person who is struggling in your belief, that's why I, I beg you and I urge you when I pray that you pray, Lord, I want to believe that that's your completed work. If you have not received Jesus Christ as your Lord, you should not take. If you are not a member of this church, you can take. It's not about which church you're a part of. Are you part of the Lord's church? If you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to commune with us as we commune with him. But if you do not know him, we ask that you refrain or either you turn now in this moment when I pray and say, Lord, would you save me? I don't know all the nuances and the contours, but would you save me? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you for your words today. We're thankful, Lord God, for your work on the cross that you've already worked it out, therefore we can walk it out. Lord God, underneath the hood of our lives are so many things that we don't fully understand, but that's not the prerequisite for full and courageous faith as we look at Rahab. She would have not grown up in a traditional Jewish household, oh Lord. She would have known very little to nothing other than your reputation of redemption. Lord God, there's some people in the room that that's all they're holding on to, that you are a God who does save, who can save, and who is over everything. Lord God, would you meet with that person? Would you meet with that person who has never asked you to come into their life? Lord God, would you meet with that person that they would call on you by name, that they would ask you to save them, that they would become a child of God based on the completed work of your son, Jesus Christ, who died in their place, that they would not have to experience your wrath. Lord God, would you move on that heart that they would ask you to come in and receive you? Would you move on that heart, Lord God, that has got calluses but no character? That heart that believes, Lord God, that they got courageous faith, but really what they have is, Lord God, just a big personality. Lord God, would you move on that heart and draw that person with a lot of calluses to surrender those calluses to you? Lord God, you've got the ultimate calluses. When you came in, Lord God, to, 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 to the doubt, to Thomas who doubted you, you didn't call him a hater because he didn't believe in you. You invited him to examine your wounds, to help your injuries inform his faith. Lord God, there's some of us out there with calluses that are not yet character. We got big shoulders. We've got humongous personalities. We've got bold professions but they're not tethered to your word. Lord God, would you, would you help calluses translate the character in the lives of those who need you in that way? Lord God, I also pray for the person who maybe is here as a guest and 
just kind of wondering what's the right place to anchor down and, and to pursue your word and to receive teaching and community, oh God, and, and they're here today and maybe they're examining this church. It's one of those places. I pray, oh God, for that person too. They would be courageous, even though there might be some unknowns. They'd be courageous like Rahab and make a decision that is honorable before you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've got your emblems with you, again, whether you are a member of this church or not is irrelevant. If you are a member of the body of Christ, you are invited to participate with us. I'm looking at Jesus' own words or the words of Jesus quoted by Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And it says, for, in, for I received of the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he betrayed, was betrayed took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. What we just said is we are part of one body, which is Christ that was broken for us on our behalf. That's what we just testified to. Now we continue our testimony in keeping with the scriptures declare. It says this, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you and do this remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and after the supper, he said, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. What we've just confessed through the cup is that, Lord, I am a covenant participant in the, in the completed work that has been worked out on the cross, and it's my plan to walk it out. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you and praise you again for the communion of the saints as well as, Lord God, for the blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord God, for the unique communion that you have with us and invite us into would you now, Lord God, allow us to just soberly worship you with this new appreciation of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.